My name is Joshua. I'm one of the pastors here, as Kyle mentioned, for one more week. And I'm glad to be preaching to you on the passage that was just read this fourth Sunday and last Sunday of the season of Advent. I'm reminded, um, as I do, of the words of Fleming Rutledge uh, in her Advent sermon. She said that Advent begins in the dark. Advent begins in the dark, which means that Advent is a season that invites us, yes, to wait, yes, to hope, but also it invites us to a sober reality that things are not the way they are supposed to be. Advent, then, is this season of cognitive dissonance, isn't it? It's a time where we proclaim the hope of the coming of Jesus. We proclaim the hope of his kingdom that will someday come to us, even as we admit the reality that things are not now the way they're supposed to be, which means that Advent is about hope. It's waiting with hope, which the Bible tells us that it means that it's also about desire. Did you know that there is a relationship between hope and desire? Um, we, we hope for the things that we don't yet have. And there's a passage in the Old Testament that you might not think of as an Advent passage. Um, there's no mention of the coming of Christ, the first or the second Advent. But it's one of the only places in the Bible, apart from Genesis and Revelation, where the tree of life is mentioned. It's in Proverbs chapter 13. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And Advent invites us then to name all the ways that our hearts are sick with this broken world. All of the ways that we don't yet have what we're waiting for. All of the ways that our desires are twisted and unmet here in this world, which means that if we understand and celebrate Advent rightly, then it will intensify our pain because it is a painful thing to have hope deferred. It is a painful thing to wait for our desires fulfilled. But here's how it works. It's in the naming of what we don't have that we're able to intensify not just the pain of not having, but we're also able to intensify our hope. And we're doing that through this series of naming all of the things that Jesus promises when he returns in the second advent of Christ. Uh, normally what we do when our hearts are sick with things that we don't have, we just blunt the desire. But Jesus will not let us do that. He says, I actually want to intensify your desire. So I'm going to reveal to you something about the world to come, which will intensify your desire. It will whet your appetite. It will make you hunger for the world to come. Therefore, cognitive dissonance. Hope for the world to come, heart sick for the way the world is today. And waiting... And the time in between is difficult. But when we name the way that our pain is intensified, it also whets our appetite even further. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way 
1928, in Advent sermon, he said, not all can wait. Certainly not those who are satisfied, contented, and feel that they live in the best of all possible worlds. Those who learn to wait are uneasy about their way of life, but yet have seen a vision of greatness in the world of the future and are patiently expecting its fulfillment. The celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul, who know themselves to be poor and imperfect and look forward to something greater to come. For these, it is enough to wait in humble fear until the Holy One Himself comes down to us. In other words, Advent is for the heart sick. Advent is for those who, whose hope is deferred. And so as we look at this passage, may it increase our appetite for that world, our longing for that world. Let me pray for us as we dive in. Lord, would you speak to us this morning? Would you reveal the glory and the beauty of the world to come, even if it may intensify our pain and our disappointment with the way things are? Lord, meet us in our pain and our anxiety and our fears and our hopes and our waiting and whet our appetite for your kingdom. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this week... Millions of Americans are going to engage in a mass pilgrimage. We will gas up our cars, check our bags, line up with our mask on, our earbuds in, our shoes off, to go through terminals, toll highways, um, to, to drive across borders, over the river, and through the woods, spend hundreds of dollars and hours doing it, all for one purpose, all for one reason, in order to be, as the song tells us, home for the holidays. But I wonder, what do we find when we get there? What do the pilgrims find when they arrive at their destination this Christmas? Will we find home? Of course, some of us will find a loving and protective home, a place where we are seen and known and are accepted, a place of warmth and belonging, a refuge from the harsh realities of the outside world. But I'd be willing to bet that many of those pilgrims, many of us will not find the home we're looking for. What we may find instead is that the fault lines in our family conflicts have gotten more rigid in the past year. Some of us will find a barrage of questions that begin with, when will you fill in the blank? Usually it's get married, have kids, find a job, um, lose weight, something like that. And it ends with contempt and shame. Some of us will find a harsh and sarcastic style of relating that hides the envy and the competition within the family. Some of us will find empty seats where the ones who were the glue of the family you used to sit. Some of us will find guilt trips. Some of us will find the same roles and habits and sins that we left just waiting for us to put them back on like an old college sweatshirt. Chances are that this Christmas we will find that home is more elusive than we thought it would be. 
all of us who make the pilgrimage home will find that home may be harder to find than ever. And the reason why is that even in the best, the reason why even in the best homes they still don't satisfy our longing for home is because we were meant for another home. We were made for a home that we've never seen. We are all homesick for the Garden of Eden. And there are these images in the last pages of the Bible that we've been studying for the past four weeks in Revelation 21 and 22 that point us back like echoes of Eden, point us back to the garden to remind us of where the story began. And because we were all made for Eden, we all have that deep longing to be at home, that deep longing to belong. And these passages in Revelation and the passages in Genesis at the, at, at the end and the beginning of the Bible don't expressly mention it, but there's a word, a Hebrew word here that's conveyed in all the images we've seen these past four weeks. And if you've been around Christ Presbyterian Church for a while, you know this word. It's the Hebrew word shalom. It's the word for peace, for harmony, for flourishing, and it's especially true of relationships. And so if we want to get a proper vision of the home that we're made for and the home to which we are going, we have to look at this word shalom in Scripture. And so I'm going to trace the story of Scripture and come back to the idea of the new Jerusalem, which we're looking at today. But we're going to see the shalom established, shalom shattered, shalom sought, and shalom secured. I admit that's a lot of Hebrew for us this morning, but I, th- I, th- I think we can handle it. And the first thing, shalom established. These images in our passage today, like I said, point us back. The tree of life, the water of life, the garden, even the stones, the gemstones that are mentioned, they point us back to a time in the beginning when God created the universe. And it even points us back to beyond that. Because in the beginning, shalom existed forever because God exists as a holy trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect peace, perfect laughter, perfect joy, perfect shalom. And it was out of that love that God created the universe and he created the earth. He created humanity. He put them in the garden in order to be loved by him, to be in relationship with him. God is a relational God, and he created us for relationships. He created us to be in relationship with him, in relationship, a relationship of shalom, of peace and harmony with the God who made us. He created us to be in a relationship of shalom with the world around us, with the created world. Also, he created us to be in, relation, in a relationship of shalom within ourselves, And also, most importantly for this passage, he created us to be in a relationship of shalom with other human beings. God created community. Before the breaking of the world, God said, it is not right for men to be alone. It is not right for humanity to be alone. So he created marriage and family and cities and neighboring so that humanity could fill the earth and create communities 
for the thriving and flourishing of humanity. Humans are pack animals. We're not meant to be alone. But, of course, we know the story. Shalom was shattered. It was shattered by sin. Sin entered the garden and humanity was sent out of the garden, exiled from their home. And those relationships that were meant to be relationships of peace and harmony and love were now shattered. Humanity was distant from God. That relationship was broken. We were distant from ourselves. We were broken with broken hearts and corrupt natures that desired to turn in on ourselves. Our relationship to the earth was broken and the way we would work and toil and labor was broken. And our relationships to other human beings was also broken. Shalom was shattered. Enmity and strife entered in to the story of humanity and it would would corrupt every human relationship. If you remember the story, Adam and Eve, exiled from home, exiled from the garden, started a family. And what's the next story in the Bible? It's the story of Cain and Abel. Enmity and strife was present in that relationship between brothers. And sin conquered Cain, and Cain killed his brother. And we see that that same enmity and strife is present in every human relationship. It's present in every family, in every marriage, in every workplace, every office, every classroom. Enmity and strife enter into the picture and disrupt shalom. We have conflict in every level of community. We have violence and harm at every level of community because sin has corrupted God's good creation, because humanity rebelled against God, and now we have to contend with sin. And throughout the Bible, you see this story of enmity and strife, lust and anger destroying the shalom of relationships. And so when we turn to look for home, we have to acknowledge that every home is marked in some way by enmity and strife. Every home is marked by conflict. Some of you know that I've spent the past five years or so studying trauma and how to engage in um, therapy and post, uh, for those who are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And in a way, we are all struggling with the trauma of being exiled from Eden. We are all struggling with the trauma of sin in our relationships and in our homes. So we all have a PTSD of missing home. We all have the PTSD of relationships not being the way they're supposed to be. And um, one of the professors that I've been studying under, his name is Dan Allender, uh, but I've, he I've heard these stories over and over and over again of how the greatest harm that people have experienced is in their homes. It's in their families. And that's because our families are some of the most intimate, some of the most 
um, the, the, the places where we're supposed to belong, because we know what we long for in our hearts for our families to be, families can be one of the greatest places of harm and abuse. And Dan Allender has said that abuse in the family has one of the highest return on investments for evil. We all know that abuse can happen in a moment, and it will reap a lifetime of harm. Many of us have experienced that. We know it's true. And so the places that were meant to bring us security and belonging actually bring us enmity, strife, rejection, abandonment, abuse, Some of us may even wonder, is it even worth it to look for home? Because people are risky. If I let anyone in, they can hurt me. But if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that that enmity and strife that runs through every human community also runs through every human heart. We wound, we harm, we lust, we envy. The, the hatred that was in Cain's heart is in our heart too. So how do we build a home? How do we find a home when, when the problem is even within our own hearts? Well, Scripture tells us that um, we all try. We all try. Cain, if you know the story, was also exiled, not from Eden, but from um, community and family, and he wandered the earth in search of home. And we too wander the earth in search of home. We seek shalom in our relationships, in our families, in our workplaces, in our clubs, in our communities, whether we're Christian or not, whether we're introverted or extroverted, we all are looking for shalom. We're looking for home. And underneath that looking for home is a, desire, is, a, is a homesickness for Eden. We're looking for shalom. I am in a, um, I would say don't judge me for this, but you can judge me if you want. I'm in a Facebook group for Traeger Grill owners. And that's not even the nerdiest Facebook group that I'm in. Um, and get this. Um, this group has over 170,000 members. What do we do? We post pictures of our brisket and we give each other high fives over the internet. Why? We're looking for community. We're looking for connection, affinity. We're looking for belonging. Because you have a Traeger grill, I have a Traeger grill too. Maybe we can be friends. We're looking for community. We're looking for belonging, connection. That's what our hearts desire. Um, Kurt Thompson, the, the Christian writer and doctor, said that we were all born into the world looking for someone, looking for us. And we remain in this mode of searching for the rest of our lives. Are you the one? Are you the one for me? Are you the spouse for me? Are you going to make me feel at home? Are you the friend for me? Are you, is this the happy hour for me? Is this the Facebook group for me? Are we going to find the shalom that we seek? 
See, we build marriages and friendships and cities and governments, but they never seem to satisfy. Even the best friendships are often fleeting and transient. But what happens when we don't find the shalom we're looking for is that often we turn to, you know, if I can't have love, at least I'll have power. You know, if, if I can't find the belonging that I'm looking for in a home, you know, maybe I'll find it in a group of people, in a tribe, and we will together find our superiority over other people. David Brooks, the um, essayist, the author, he calls, um, he says that there's an evil twin of community, he calls it tribalism. Some of the ways that we seek shalom is to disrupt it in other, with other people and other relationships through tribalism. Sometimes we just simply use other people. If we can't get their love, we'll at least use them for our own power, our own paycheck, our own identity, our own value, our own sense of worth. Just, just give me what I need to make it easier for me to sleep at night. But in all of our seeking for shalom, which sometimes further wounds us and other people, I'd be willing to bet that, that even the best relationships, the best homes and friendships and marriages don't satisfy the desire for shalom, the desire for home that we're made for. See, what happens is we actually need our brokenness to be put back together. We need to be made new into new people. And it's for that reason, for us and for our salvation, that the eternal word of God took on flesh and became a man and dwelled among us. It's for that reason that this baby was born in Bethlehem and lied, put in a manger to secure our salvation, to secure our shalom. I think it's fitting that on Christmas, while we're celebrating our mass pilgrimage and sleeping in hotel rooms and guest rooms and on couches, that we read this story about a young couple who are also transient, liminal, traveling, looking for home. They go to Bethlehem and can't find a home, not even a temporary one. See, it's in this in this story of shalom that Jesus enters into in order to secure our shalom. The story of, of Christmas is a story of God becoming a man, entering into this pilgrimage in order to secure our shalom, in order to bring us peace with God and peace with each other. Christ is not immune to all of the suffering of shalom shattered. Christ was rejected, homeless, transient, rejected by his hometown, his people, lonely in the hours before his arrest, abandoned by friends, forsaken on the cross, all in order to bring us home, to bring us to sit at his table, to make us at peace with God. And it's because he has secured our shalom that we will be able to participate in the new Jerusalem. It's because Jesus was forsaken that we will be accepted. When he returns at the second advent of Christ, he brings the city of God with him. And I want to say, as we look at this homecoming, that, you know, I could quote to you all the statistics 
about how people are more lonely than they've ever been, about the statistics of how that affects our physical health. I could tell you about how um, human communities uh, are experiencing a, a deep level of isolation. I could read you op-eds and quote the statistics, but you all know what it feels like to be lonely. You all know the pain of broken relationships, broken homes, broken communities, disengaged neighborhoods. So I don't need to tell you the statistics, but here's one thing I will offer you. When you're lonely, what if it doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you? What if it means that there's something right with you? That you feel the desire for home, that you feel a desire for belonging, because you were created for that. And if you see it that way, then I think you will see the incarnation and you'll see the advent, the second advent of Christ as a hopeful, joyful homecoming. You will look to Christ to satisfy your needs, not just in the present age, but in the age to come. And Christ wants us to in our loneliness look to him, to the city that he is bringing for our hope. And that's why he gives this vision to John, to the apostle John. And he says, tell them about the city of God. Remind them that as the city of God, the home that they, be, that they have longed for their entire lives is coming and I'm bringing it with me. He tells us a few things about this city in our passage today, the New Jerusalem, to encourage Christians, to encourage those who are longing for home, to say, look further down the road. The home that you're longing for is the New Jerusalem. Um, first off, he does tell us that it is a city. In verse 2, it says, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And what we have to see here is that this new city, Jerusalem, is not just a return to the Garden of Eden. It's not a garden that descends from heaven, but a city with a garden in the midst of it. It's not a village. It's not a hamlet. It's not a town. It's not a home for a single family. It is a city that comes down from heaven with Christ when he returns. So we can, we can construct in our minds an agrarian utopia if we want to, um, but we'll have to go to Wendell Berry for help with that because in the Bible we see an urban dwelling, the heavenly city descending, which is another way of saying that this is not going back to Eden. The new Jerusalem is a culmination of everything Eden was meant to be the heavenly city, the city of God. But he also tells us something in this passage about the nature of this city. And, and the first thing we see, which, which might not strike us as an odd thing, but it's that this is a diverse city. In this very passage, in verse 3, it says that he will dwell with them and they will be his people. But in the Greek language that it's written in, it actually says that they will be his people's plural. If you flip back to Revelation 5, you see that 
There's a vision of the saints in heaven surrounding the throne of God and the Lamb. And they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. This city is made up of the nations of the earth. It's not a tribalistic city. It's a diverse city made up of the peoples of the earth from every nation, tribe, and tongue. But it's also a holy city. He says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, which means that this is a city of the redeemed. This is a city of those whose names were written in the book of life, which tells us that the citizens of the New Jerusalem are not the good people, the upright, the salt of the earth, the dignified, the ones who have it together, the ones who try the hardest as what they've been given, but the ones who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, ransomed by His blood. The one whose sins are atoned for, that's what makes it holy. It's holy because Christ has made it holy. But we're also told that this city is not just useful to God, but it's desired and known and loved by God. In verse 2, we see that this is a beloved city. It says that it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Verse 7 says that we will be with God like a son with a father. The city that we long for is a city that is beloved by God, where he dwells with us in the midst of the city where we see God face to face, where we're at peace not just with our neighbor, but with God. And that's the last thing we see here in this passage, that it is a city of peace, the new Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. Do you hear it? Jerusalem, the city whose name means city of peace, city of shalom. Maybe it is expressly mentioned in this passage. The new Jerusalem will be a city of peace, a city without sin or death or evil. It will be the home that we're waiting for, the city of lasting and eternal shalom, which means it will be a city without sin. It will be a city with no more enmity and strife between brothers or neighbors or races or nations. No more betrayal, no more slander, no more internet trolls, no more humble brags, no more jockeying for power, no more passive-aggressive comments, and for that matter, no more aggressive-aggressive comments. No more triangulation, no more abuse, no more codependency, no more isolation, no more loneliness, no more competition, No more envy, no more divorce, no more abandonment, no more fear of abandonment, no more sad goodbyes, no more searching for home. When the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, the city of Shalom descends with Christ in her midst, we will be home at last. The home that we have been searching for will be ours on that day. So what do we do now? Well, of course, there are lots of things to do to build homes here that offer the fragrance of Christ, the fragrance and aroma of the gospel. 
to offer it to the strangers, the widows, the orphans, the people that God desires to bring into community and to put in homes. Yes, we forgive as we have been forgiven. We repair ruptures and heal conflicts. We make peace and reconcile. We love sacrificially. We share meals together. We look after each other's kids. We check in on those who need it. We forge an uncommon family. We, sh- we seek the shalom of our neighbors and our cities and our families and our societies wherever we can. But before we do any of those things, Advent invites us to grieve, to grieve our loss of home, to grieve all the ways that shalom has been shattered, all the ways that our seeking of shalom has disappointed us. And that grief ends with this phrase, come Lord Jesus, come, which means that our grief, every grief for the, for the Christian ends in hope ends in waiting for desire to be fulfilled, waiting for the tree of life. So we grieve and we say, come Lord Jesus, and we hope, we put our hope in the world to come. And we look to that city of God. We look to that belonging where we will have, be at peace with God and peace with our neighbor, and there will be nothing to make us afraid. And we wait and we wait in hope. And I want to end with this quote from a book that you've heard me quote from a lot. It's called The Supper of the Lamb. It's written by an Episcopal priest named Robert Capon, who was also a food writer for the New York Times and an amateur cook. And he reminds us that in all of our hungering for shalom in this world, that it ultimately points us to the world to come. And that's true for our hungering for home as well. But of this world, he, he says this. He says, for all its greatness, and trust me, I'm the last man on earth to sell it short. The created order cries out for further greatness still. The most splendid dinner, the most exquisite food, the most gratifying company, the safest home. Arouse more appetites than they satisfy. They do not slake man's thirst for being. They wet it beyond all bounds. Half of earth's gorgeousness lies hidden in the glimpse city it longs to become. For all its rooted loveliness, the world has no continuing city here. It is an outlandish place, a foreign home, a session in via to a better version of itself. And it is our glory to see it and thirst until Jerusalem comes home at last. We were given appetites not to consume the world and forget it, but to taste its goodness and hunger to make it great. Come then, leap upon these mountains, skip upon these hills and heights of earth. The road to heaven does not run from the world, but through it. The longest session of all is no continuation of these sessions here but a lifting of them all by priestly love. It is a place for men, not ghosts, for the risen gorgeousness, gorgeousness of the new earth and for the glorious earthiness of the true Jerusalem. Eat well then. Between our love and his priesthood, he makes all things new. Our last home 
will be home indeed. Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Amen.